make our way through the book of 1 Samuel together. We are in the first part, 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to make your way over to 1 Samuel 4. And I can't believe I forgot to look up the page number. Um, last week, we dipped our toe into chapter 4 because I, it, it really belonged with that passage, if you remember passage began with talking about how rare the word of the Lord was. Uh, there was no frequent vision. It's not that there was no vision at all. Eli himself had been visited by two prophets, um, but Eli didn't do anything really. He allowed God's name to be blasphemed by his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They, they bullied worshipers. They, they stole meat. They they seduced girls who were there to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord. And it was known, it was publicly known, a, a report was going out, a bad report far and wide on the goings-on at the tabernacle. So God called Samuel, and his first job as prophet was to deliver that second message to Eli that the doom was impending. You remember his response? He was warned that his two sons would die in one day. It didn't happen. You know, it was, it was hard to restrain them, and uh, he was apathetic about it. Um, but that was his job as a Levite. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It was his job as a Levite to defend the holiness of the Lord, let alone as high priest. What set the Levites apart was precisely this. There, there were no... They were, they were more devoted to Jehovah and His holiness than they were to any family or friend connection. The other thing that set the Levites apart, particularly through Aaron and the high priestly line, was the access to God's will through the Urim and the Tumim. They could ask God questions. You know, when Moses blessed Eli in Deuteronomy 33... This is what he said, and of Eli, of Levi, he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Umim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa and with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. He says, they, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law, but... But the, the word was rare in those days because the, the word was being ignored. Now, that's where we were at the beginning of the book. We are watching a transition in Israel's history from the period of the judges to the monarchy. Um, now, do you remember Eli's response? He'd been warned, and, and Samuel confirms the disaster. So Eli says, it is the Lord... Let him do what seems good to him. You know, I, I think I get that. Uh, I mean, I can see my own tendencies in his response. See, Eli, I think, I think Eli gives up. Oops, I don't know what I did. Now, we're not supposed to give up. Um, see... This is a flaw. This is a character flaw for Eli. 
but Eli resigns himself to the fact that his, his boys don't know the Lord and that his uh, authority didn't, um, I don't know, weigh much, carry much weight anymore. Um, he didn't know what to do about things, or as the Bible makes clear, he, he refused to remove, restrain, execute, whatever. He refused to restrain his boys. I'm not exactly sure what he was supposed to do, but he, was, he didn't do it. He was, the, the text makes clear that he honored his boys more highly than he honored the holiness of God. And the very first, uh, but, but that's the sad state of, of Israel. And, um, and now it's about to change. Samuel grew. You remember the, the, that, that line? Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. This is the, pre, the end of the previous chapter. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the very first verse of our passage reiterates and confirms this new reality. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. And yet... As we turn our attention into this chapter, Samuel disappears. Samuel falls into the background, uh, all except for this introductory statement that belongs as much to this context, mainly for the absence of Samuel in the word of the Lord as for their presence. They are notably absent. Now, Samuel's going to be back, of course, but the attention shifts for four chapters, well, three and a half chapters, the, the attention shifts to the fulfillment of this prophecy, the death of Eli's sons. What, what Eli didn't count on as he resigned himself, when I say I think he gave up, I think he realized, okay, yeah, my family's no good. Fair enough, Lord, wipe them out. But he didn't think about the ark and the rest of the people and, and how his actions were going to reverberate. Let's dive in. Verses 1 to 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Listen to that long description of the Ark. This is what they brought. They brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, when we hear that, and we know Hophni and Phinehas, already we're going, this is not going to end well. Okay, so the enemy is the Philistines, which kind of places us uh, in, a, in a historical context. Um, remember, this is in the period of the judges. 
And, and that period was marked by a cycle. The people would forget the Lord. They would bow down to other gods, you know, turn to idols. And then they would, uh, God would allow the surrounding nations to oppress them. And, and then they would repent and cry out, and God would raise up a deliverer for them over and over again, like rinse and repeat, right? And, well, Samson, it was the last judge that we read about in the book of Judge. We didn't actually read this, you know, together, but Samson's the last judge we read about uh, in the book of Judges, and and he doesn't exactly break the back of the Philistines. He does kill 3,000 of the Philistines in his own death as he brings the temple Dagon down on them all, as well as the five lords of the five cities. So it kind of broke the back a little bit uh, of the Philistines. Uh, but they've regrouped now. They are, um, they are, though, newcomers to the area. They were not there when Israel came out of Egypt but they're there now. The, uh, the, the late Bronze Age collapsed very suddenly and it, it sent people uh, moving homelands all over the world. Well, one of these peoples, the Peleshet, the Philistines, are from somewhere in the Aegean or Turkey, but they moved uh, as a people to new lands. Now, you'd call them refugees, except... They're armies. They come in and invade. It's more like Vikings than anything else. And, and they're a dangerous foe um, that is eyeing Israel's land and wants it. Uh, and because, because the people are not walking in the ways that God has instructed them to walk, we know what's coming. The cycle isn't over. Oh, no. So the Philistines' battle line is just 20 miles due west of the, uh, the sanctuary, and the people go there to defend the land, and they are defeated. 4,000 fall. That's huge. You know, we're an enormous country, um, and less than that died in 9-11, and yet most people you met had some connection to the disaster. 4,000 is a lot, and it was painful. And the people asked the right question, why did this happen? They asked the question, but they don't wait for the answer. And, and that's really the key to understanding not just this passage, but so much of what happens in this book. Is it human strength and wisdom, or is it divine strength? manifested through humility. Remember Hannah's song? How the proud will be brought low and the humble will be exalted. So they asked the right question. There are two answers available to them, two legit answers. They could call for uh, Hophni and Phinehas to bring the ephod, not the ark, the ephod, with the Urim and the Thummim and ask God, Why? And wait for the answer. Or they could go to Samuel. Samuel was established. Everybody in Israel knows Samuel is established as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord is, has returned. The word of the Lord has returned through Samuel at Shiloh. They went to Shiloh to get the ark. Why didn't they ask? Judges 20, Israel responds to Benjamin <clears throat> acting like Sodom by attacking their brothers and uh, and as Levi was supposed to do, 
So all Israel does toward Benjamin. But Benjamin starts out by beating them. So Israel suffers a defeat. So they ask God and they act according to his instructions. But not here. What do they call for? Oh, the... The other option would be Samuel, of course. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and, and none of his words fell to the ground. And from all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. They didn't ask. They didn't seek the word of the Lord. And that's what's absent in this chapter. It's not just Samuel. It's what Samuel represents, the word of the Lord. Let the ark of the covenant of the Lord be brought from Shiloh, that he may come among us and save us from the power of their enemies. They think that by bringing the ark, that by bringing God, the symbol of God's presence, that they can manipulate God. That's pretty clear. And it's strange, too. I mean, uh, they know that it was the Lord who defeated them. Look. They were defeated by the Philistines, and they asked, why has God allowed us to be defeated, right? And yet, rather than finding out why God didn't give them to victory, uh, they try to figure out a way to make God give them the victory. And we don't ever do that, do we? Of course we do. At the very least, isn't it interesting how suddenly willing we are to fast or pray or, or do some other pious thing if it will only persuade God? Got a big test coming up. Boy, I bet you pray that night, right? How many deals have you tried to strike with God in your life? Even if you know better theologically, But God will not be manipulated. His being in their presence is what gives them glory. His being in their presence is what sanctifies them and makes them holy. But that's because He is holy and He is glorious. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So we know they're doomed. Let's keep reading, verses 5 to 11. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So the Israelites rely on a good luck charm. And the Philistines rely on grit and determination. Who's going to win? Well, neither really. God is going to win. 
But in order to win, God will allow himself to be humiliated. Went from 4,000 dead to 34,000 dead. All because they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. But leaned on their own understanding. Relied on their own devices. Verse 12. A man from Benjamin came from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli, who was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Why did Eli let this happen at all? I mean, why did the ark go forth from Shiloh? Well, Eli's 98, blind and overweight. I'm not sure he could have done much to stop it. Um... It's too late. His ability to act like that is gone. Um, His ability to curtail the blasphemy is at an end. Um, But it happened, and now Eli, even though he's old and blind, you know, he's anxious for the ark. So it's kind of a, a funny scene because he's sitting by the gate awaiting news, and the guy with the news had to pass right by him. Uh, and then he tells the city, the city is an uproar, and he has to come back out to the gate to tell Eli. Uh, well, notice that Eli, he wasn't phased by the flight of Israel. He wasn't phased by a great defeat of Israel uh, or even the death of his two sons. What made Eli faint was news of the ark. And when he fainted, he broke his neck. Verse 19, now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she knelt or bowed and gave birth, and her pains came upon her. And About the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay any attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You know, with Phineas's wife, the loss of the ark, the the loss of the priest, you know, the, the high priest, and the judge, all of it's included in her sentiment. Uh, ordinarily, the birth of a child um, 
especially a boy, would bring some level of comfort to a woman in this situation, but not here. Ichabod. There is no glory, or where is the glory? It means one of the two. The, the glory is departed, which is the, the, it's a word that's regularly used for the glory is exiled. The glory has, been, has gone into exile. So our passage ends on a very desperate note. What's the point of the passage before us? Well, in a way to grab the, grasp the point of this passage requires a little broader perspective on this, these four chapters that are, we're just opening up today. Um, this story, the ark episode, it, it continues to the beginning of chapter 7. There are, there are three battles at Ebenezer. These first two you know, 4,000 dead, then 34,000 dead. That happens at Ebenezer. And then the Philistines are going to have to deal with the ark, and we're going to deal with that next week. Uh, but then the ark comes home. And when the ark comes home, God delivers yet another blow to his people who do not acknowledge his holiness. And then it sits there for a while, and Israel comes to its senses. It goes to repent. They go to Mizpah to renew the covenant. They have this great repentance. And at just that moment, the Philistines pounce. There's a big difference, though, isn't there? Because now the people have come in humility. Now they have come in worship and humility, seeking to exalt the holiness of God. And so God defeats the enemies there and... Samuel calls the place Ebenezer. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. He says, all along, all along God has been helping us. Well, in that first Ebenezer, how was God helping? He allowed 34,000 men to die. He allowed the very symbol of his presence to be put into a pagan temple as if conquered by a foreign god. Well, as we're going to see, God's going to show himself holy among the nations. <laughs> and his exile among them is actually going to bring Israel relief. Uh, god is actually fighting for them. But God's also showing himself holy among the people by... Uh, the people who are called by his name. Uh, he's showing himself holy among us. How dare you, he's saying, I am holy. I am no trinket. I am no charm. I am no rabbit's foot. I am God and there is no other. So God disciplines his people while delivering them. Isn't that marvelous? And as he does that, he paints a picture of the coming gospel when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be crucified, the ultimate humiliation. And there, like here, it's voluntary. Listen to John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The char this charge that I have received, I received from my Father. 
God wasn't beaten by the Philistines. So again, what's the point for us? Well, it's this. The difference between Ebenezer 1 and Ebenezer 2 is humility. The Israelites relied on a magic talisman. The Philistines relied on human strength. Both are destroyed before the holiness of God. The path to strength and safety lies in humility. Remember Hannah's song? Speak no more so very proudly. Don't let arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So rather than trying to make a deal with God, to try to manipulate God to do what you want Him to do for you, try renewing your minds, washing them with the pure water of the Word so that you can learn what He wants you to do for Him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, our passage ends on an odd note. There's no resolution. Um, we, We know the resolution. Christ will be humiliated to gain the victory for us. And that very thing is going to play out in pictures over the next couple of weeks. But but we're left in in the passage on on this sour note of Ichabod. The glory is gone. What led to the loss of glory? Has your walk with the Lord, I don't know, stalled somehow? Somehow? Does it seem as though God has turned away? There's no fervor, no power, no glory. Are you struggling with the question, why? Why has God allowed this or that to happen? Well, when you ask that question, and you know, so many of us tend to ask that question very frantically, you have to wait for the answer. To act before you've gotten the answer. Don't you recognize how foolish that is? And yet, that is what we are so prone to do. To lean on our own understanding, come up with devices or strength. Rather than being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we try to play chess with our circumstances. What was absent in the story wasn't just Samuel, it's the Word of God. That was the context that set up our story. Samuel was established as a prophet, but they didn't ask. Not really. They asked rhetorically. Since they were really asking themselves, that was the source of their strength and wisdom, wasn't it? How do you engage the Word of God? Is the Word of God a a serious concern, a central reality in your life, or is it an ancillary afterthought in your life? Does it guide your actions or maybe just filter what you otherwise would do? How humble are you before the Lord? You know, God is raising up an anointed king who will stand out as special because of his humility and because of his responsiveness to God.
let's begin to take the cues that we're being given now and, and humble ourselves before him. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that we would naturally boss you around if we were able, or at least use you before we would submit to you. So, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you died for us. Not only that, but that you sent your spirit to awaken our dead hearts, to open our eyes to the truth of your gospel. Oh, Lord, we know that we fall so very short of your glory. Forgive us and transform us. Teach us, Lord, to listen, to wait, to be patient, to trust you. Our little minds are constantly playing chess with our circumstances, Lord. We, we try to manipulate things. We try to figure out what's going to happen and then try to change it through our actions rather than seeking your counsel or praying for your blessing. Oh, Lord, give us the humility required to, to find understanding. Give us a hunger for and a delight in your word and speak to us there, Lord. Direct our steps. Give us understanding and wisdom through your word. Remind us that it is not by might that we have victory, but only as we submit to you. So, Father, we do ask that you'd make us wise. And we do ask that you'd make us powerful. That we know that power is found in weakness because it's your power that is in, on display. And what better way to, to show forth the glory that is ours, Lord, than to package it as you have in earthen vessels. Help us, Lord, to be humbled by that recognition, to realize that we are weak and that you chose us precisely because of that. Let us be weak, Lord, that we might find true strength. Let us be fools for you, believing your word over our very wisdom. Teach us to wait while we do, while we struggle to walk humbly before you, loving our neighbors as you've taught us to, while we make our way, Lord, fight our battles before us. Guard us, guide us, provide for us, and bring us all home, still clinging to Jesus, for whose sake we pray and in whose name. Amen.